Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. I was thinking as I was sitting out in the uh, chairs, it's been, oh, wow, probably uh, three, maybe four years since I was in this pulpit last, um, before Ross was here. And uh, so it's good to be back. And I want to thank you, Ross, for inviting me. Um, it's good to get out, of the, get out and smell the air a little bit and see what else is going on in the kingdom of uh, God. I love Vineyard Columbus. That's my church. But it's uh, always fun for me to get out and uh, see other uh, churches that we're in relationship with. I was just up uh, visiting a brother in Detroit. A young guy, he's a church planter, planting in Detroit. Now, that takes courage. You know, that city's tanking, and he's out there with... Uh, plenty of passion and intentionality, and he invited me up, and it was a small, struggling little church plant, but what a lot of fun to be with those, with those people. And uh, we certainly bless you and what you're doing here. We pray for you as a congregation, and uh, realize it takes lots of places, lots of congregations to cover a city. So God bless you uh, in all that you're doing in terms of uh, um, holding up the light of Christ in this neck of the woods. So uh, let me begin this morning with, um, still morning? Yep, still morning, uh, with a story. The story takes place out of the life of a pastor now retired called Bruce Thielman. He was a Presbyterian, and uh, time was when I used to know a lot more Presbyterians than I do now, but he was a good one and a great preacher. And uh, he pastored as a senior pastor in several places, wrote lots of books, um, best known for his preaching, and he told the story of a visit to New York City. And uh, the story takes place in a subway where he's waiting to catch a subway train, and while he's waiting for the train, he's reading the graffiti on the other wall. Now, this is before the time of Rudolph Giuliana, uh, Giuliani, who was there, who really kind of cleaned everything up uh, as a way to combat crime. Um, so it's, it's back a few years, but as he was standing on the platform reading the graffiti across the track, he started chuckling to himself a little, a little bit because as he read a piece of graffiti, he said to himself, that must have been a, a small boy who wrote that. And uh, the reason he said that is because um, it said, I love girls. So, uh, you know, that's nice. Nice young man. And then he, he noticed some detail a little bit further. What he thought he had read was not exactly what was on the wall. And, and then he smiled again because he, he realized that this is was further evidence that it was a young boy who had written it because it didn't say, I love girls. It said, I love grills. He had, you know, misspelled the word girls. So um, his eyes dropped down a little below that piece of graffiti, and he noticed that somebody had come along, read it, and added to this. And uh, what they had done is sort of, uh, with another uh, can of paint, had crossed out, Grills, and below it said, I love girls. They had corrected the spelling. But this wasn't enough for yet a third person who came by who read what had been written originally and then looked at the correction and then um, wrote underneath that a question, posed a question that said, what about us grills? That's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. What about the grills in this life? What about the grills, particularly in your life? Those who are not spelled correctly. Those who have made a mess of things. Those who are on the fringe of social networks, 
uh, on the fringe of the in-crowd and even the not-so-in-crowd, even beyond that? What about those whose lives are broken? What about those who are living incredibly lonely lives, incredibly unfulfilled lives, um, incredibly meaningless lives? I want to think about that with you this morning because there's a story in the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, if you have a Bible, that talks about Jesus approaching somebody who was a grill. Somebody who on the outside uh, assessment, on an outside assessment, would appear to have accomplished everything, but who really wasn't making life work anymore, struggling to make it work. And Jesus, because of who he is, a person who came to seek and to save the lost, reaches out to this grill, this broken life, this messed up life, this meaningless life, and breathes new life into this person. It's a familiar story. For those of you who have been around church for a long time, you've heard it from your, the time you were knee-high. And uh, I've heard it and read it scores and scores of time. But we're going to read the story of Zacchaeus in just a moment. But let's pray that God would breathe on this simple story and bring life into it for everyone here in the room. Pray with me. And God, that is our prayer. That, first of all, we would encounter this story in all of its power. I pray that for everyone in this room, they would feel the touch of your spirit, that this word would become alive, that it would, it would be clear that it applies to everyone in this room. And God, you can do that because you're God. And so for all the differences that are in this room, Lord, make it relevant for every person and to this congregation because we are the body of Christ. And uh, you have set this church on a hill to be a light unto the world and to be salt. And so I pray for this congregation and as it carries on ministry that today they would be encouraged to be salt and light. Help me to speak as I should. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So let's read the scripture together. And uh, this is how it goes. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Let's keep that up for just a moment. I want you to take a look at something here a moment before we move on. A key piece. I'm going to come back to it later. And that is verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. What was lost. That passage there, that that verse there unlocks the story. It's the key. So keep that in mind. 
And as we keep that in mind, let's go and take a look at who Zacchaeus was. Let's take a quick look at who he was. He was a man who was a grill, misspelled, broken, a life full of mistakes. And uh, we have a sense of who he was, actually really was, not just from the description in verse 2, but what we can surmise from that uh, description. Let's take a look at verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, when you take a look at chief tax collector and was wealthy, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this guy made it in the world. He ought to be commended. He uh, had an uh, enviable life and was living under favorable conditions. And from all outward appearances and from a materialistic standpoint, that is absolutely the case. He was wealthy. He had high position. He had people underneath him. He had influence. He had power. Things that in this culture we, and in this world for that matter, uh, we seek after uh, diligently and uh, prize highly. Even among this, in this room, to have position, to have status, to have power, to have influence, to have money, uh, is something that for many of us uh, is more important than we might care to admit. And this was Zacchaeus. He was in an enviable spot. But, as the title says, he was a grill. His life was not working. And we can surmise why. First of all, the hint comes, first hint comes from the fact that he was a tax collector. Now, to be a tax collector at this time meant that you worked for the Roman government. The Romans were the ones who had conquered Israel and now occupied the land. Israel lived under Roman rule. There's not a country in this world that appreciates being ruled by another country. And to collect taxes meant to work for the Roman government, which means that in order to do that, Zacchaeus was a man who had lost his country. Sure, he lived there. Sure, he was raised there. But he had forfeited his right to be counted among them anymore because he, had tra- he was a traitor. He was a turncoat. He had left his own in order to promote himself, his own welfare, to survive in those conditions. The second thing we find out about Zacchaeus is that he was greedy. This isn't in the story, but if one did a little bit of research, you know that tax collectors were notorious for ripping off the people. And the way they did it was this. Rome required that 2 to 5% of all goods being transported to market would be taxed. And so um, among several other taxes they did, there was this transportation tax. And so the tax booth sat right on the road. And, um, and, of course, where Zacchaeus was in this location, it was lucrative because the farmlands were rich. Now, here's the deal, and here's how it worked in favor of Zacchaeus. He had a report 2 to 5%. But he was the one who was allowed to assess the value of the goods. You see where I'm going with this? If he could set the value of the goods, he can raise what the 2% really becomes. If it was a fair market, it would be at one level. But if he over-assessed it, it would be more money. And, uh, and so what tax collectors regularly did was uh, report one value to the government and pay their 2% and pocket the rest, what they had actually chose. He was greedy. And the people that he was ripping off were his neighbors, his community, the people of that region, people he lived among. The third thing we find out about Zacchaeus, or we can surmise, is that because of what he did with points one and two, he was a lonely man. 
He was a man who had lost relationship. A man who had lost country, lost integrity, lost relationship. He was lonely. Because when you cheat enough people, when you turn your back on your own and your culture, your country, it's not long before you find that although you may have made it materially, you are a person who lives life alone. Zacchaeus was a grill. He was a lonely, broken, messed up man. And what he was finding out was that uh, for all of his apparent success, his life was not working. It was not what he had hoped it would be. Now think quickly in terms of maybe your own life or the life of others that you've been in a relationship with, people who have made similar decisions. People have thought that the gold ring was, you know, to make it in a career, to attain a certain position of power, to, you know, have a certain house, drive a certain car, wear certain kinds of clothes, to have a lot of money to be able to do what you want, that that defined the happy and fulfilled life. Only when they got there, they discovered it was not that it was still a life that was empty, still a life that was unfulfilled, still a life that was meaningless, still a life that was very much uh, uh, broken. Now, just a quick point here about something that's not very popular anymore, and that's this. This is what sin does to us, you and I. Yes, sin. The word, biblical word, sin. That if we speak it outside this room, and in many places, even inside places like this, it's not very popular. But the Bible calls sin missing a mark, rebellion against God. It's the biblical word for what we do when we want to be in charge and and be our own God. And what sin does to us is it diminishes us as human beings. It literally drains the life from us. It literally lowers the quality of our life. Now, we could talk the rest of the time about the effects of sin. But it breaks us up internally. It breaks us up relationally with other people. And it breaks us up with God. Here is Zacchaeus, a man who had gone after the world's definition of success, only to find himself as a lost man. Now, that's the picture of Zacchaeus. But what I want you to focus on instead is Jesus for the rest of our time together. Because what we see as we look to Jesus in this story is a model for reaching the lost, a simple four-step model of reaching the lost. And I want us to focus on that. And if you have paper and pencil, um, or if you have uh, a smartphone with a little app for taking notes or whatever you have, I want you to write these down because they're simple. And if you write them down and you invest a little bit, you're going to remember them. It's transferable. It's memorable and it's effective. And so I want to talk to you about that. Now, back to verse 10. I said, this is the key for unlocking the passage. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is Jesus' model or uh, mission. This is what Jesus is about. It ends on the cross, but from the time he arrives till the cross and resurrection, this is what he was sent here to do by God the Father. And this is what he empowers us as the church to do through his Holy Spirit. It's just that simple. We are called to do what Jesus did. And Jesus came to seek and to bring salvation to grills, to messed up people, lives filled with mistakes, Lives that have been eroded by sin. 
lives that are without hope, without love, without purpose. People who are lost, people who have lost their ways. And I want to say this morning that it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. It doesn't matter whether they have the big house, the great job, the nice car. It's what's going on in the inside that counts. And so it's just not the person down in town, Columbus, who's down and out and homeless or the one who's caught up in addictions or the one who has gone, you know, through multiple marriages that we're seeking here. We're seeking everyone who has uh, not bend the knee and confess the name to Jesus and confess his name as Lord and Savior. So let's look at what Jesus does as he encounters, encounters Zacchaeus. Step one. Step one is that he awakens the spiritual need in Zacchaeus. He awakens. Um, take a look at verse 3 uh, with me. I paused there for a moment. These transitional lenses, we're just trying to pick up that small print up there. That's a joke. I mean, you know. Yeah, I'm in that stage of life. So i got to hit the right part of the lens here. There we go. Verse 3, where he says that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, just stay there on that verse. There's some more in that verse. But focus there. He wanted to see who Jesus was. What was going on with Zacchaeus? Something was stirring, at least at a curiosity level. And the question is, is what prompted him, what motivated him to seek out Jesus, to go see him? Now, if you read through the Gospel of Luke and you read through the previous, uh, the previous chapters, you're going to see that Jesus was engaged in some powerful ministry. First of all, people were loving his teaching. People were flocking to hear him talk. He was talking as if he was God himself, which we know is true. But they were coming to that conclusion. All they know is is that when he taught, they were run through. They were confronted with truth. They were motivated. They were touched by what he said. Their life was enlivened when he taught. And in addition to that, we find that Jesus was also healing the sick and throwing out demons, really demonstrating the power of the kingdom. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't just study. It wasn't just teaching. Jesus was out among the public and moving in the power of God, moving in a way that people hadn't seen in over 400 years since the last prophet had been heard from by the Jewish people. All of that could have been true. Jesus was popular. He was a growing celebrity. And we know in this culture that we love our celebrities, don't we? Don't we just love them? Love to see what they're doing in their private lives, what their next picture is, who they're dating, how their love life's going, what they're buying lately. I just saw Gwyneth Paltrow uh, just bought a fourth house. That made the news. It's amazing. You know, got one in London, got one in New York, got one some other place. She just bought in California. That's evidently big news because she's now on both coasts. So mark that down. Now we know. And uh, you're in the know. You can talk about it on coffee break. I mean, our culture loves this stuff, you know. And, and you know, if we're snickering uh, and you're a guy, you ought to take a look at how we feel about um, our sports. We just love to talk about and parse out every athlete that we see making it big and analyze their lives and see how they're performing on the field and follow their... We love, we love following celebrities, and this was true in Jesus' time, too. But here's the deal. I don't think that was why Zacchaeus was out on on the look for Jesus that day. I suspect that if we read our Bible carefully, 
And if we're paying attention to the story that Luke is weaving out for us, that the hint of why Zacchaeus is there is in the previous chapter. Because in chapter 18, we find that Jesus tells a story that would have been a particular interest to Zacchaeus. He told a story of two men. One was a religious person, a Pharisee, a guy like me, in the church, religious official, you know. And, uh, and what the story, and the other one was a tax collector, and the story centers around two prayers. Uh, one prayer was offered by the Pharisee, and he made sure that he did it in front of everyone, that the spotlights were on him, and that when he prayed, people were aware of, you know, his relationship with the Lord and, and how pious he was, how religious he was, how righteous he was. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is there's a lot of that in me. I'm a mixed bag, really. You know, when I really look at my motivations for what I do, it's never wholly about God. It's always a little bit about Stephen. And that was this guy. I mean, he was working hard to follow the Lord, but he did enjoy the limelight. Then there was this, this other guy who was found way up in the corner in a dark spot. He was just barely in through the door, barely in the temple, and feeling wholly unworthy. And he... He bowed his, uh, his head, and when he prayed, it wasn't with a lot of flowery words and wonderful con- uh, concepts and, and lots of Scripture woven in, you know, where anybody would be saying, like, that guy can pray. we got to get alongside him. we got to make him in charge of prayer here at the church. No, his prayer was simply a humble cry for mercy where he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as Jesus tells the story, he draws the conclusion that the prayer that was heard by God was the humble cry for mercy from the man who had messed up his life. Now that's in chapter 18. And I can easily imagine that when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus in Luke's gospel in chapter 19, the reason Zacchaeus is there is he had heard about this Jesus talking in a favorable favorable way about people like him. People who are grills. And he stirred something up in Zacchaeus, and what he stirred up was this. A growing awareness that Zacchaeus had led a self-centered life, and despite all of that acclaim, all of that success, all that power, that it was not cutting it for him, and what he needed to do was to shift to a God-centered life. You and I, our natural bent is to do what we want, to be our own God. It's the sin of the garden back in Genesis 3, and it affects every one of us. None of us are exempt. Paul talks about that in his letter to the Romans. None of us are exempt. The challenge, the fundamental shift that needs to happen in every life on this planet is a shift from a me-centered life to a God-centered life. Not simply going to church, not simply having your little slice of the pie that says, yeah, I do my thing at church, but then I do what else I want the rest of the week in these other categories. Yeah, I got a little space for God, but I basically run my life as I see fit. And God is just one of my resources. No, God calls us to be completely won over to Him, to be God-centered. And so this is what God is awakening in Zacchaeus. Now, 
Back in 2004, I got my doctorate, which is not a big thing. What is cool was what I was able to do doing it, and that is I got to study 60 salvation stories. And in 90% of those stories that I studied, real people telling me their story, what I discovered in 90% of that 60 is that there was a credible witness, a credible witness in their life. That means somebody who was chasing after God, somebody who was living a God-centered life. And because they were living a God-centered life, they became of interest to this person who was outside of a relationship with Jesus. What they saw in there was a person who was doing their job responsibly. What they saw was a person who was loving their family. What they saw was somebody who was loving others. What they saw even further than that, somebody who had time and space to reach out to those who were on the fringe. That they had capacity to reach out to those who had messed up their life, who weren't worthy of anything more from the human community, and yet they reach out, again, uh, with a hand of love. Those who were ordering their life in a way to reflect God's priorities, those who had a sense of peace, who had a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose for their life, people who were putting it together because they were walking with Jesus, people who were demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit because God was inside. They became interesting to the person who is not saved, and that person reached out to them. That person, by their, by their words and by their actions, became a witness for Jesus Christ in the workplace, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the extended family, uh, and, and in the community. And they found that attractive. Now, sadly, this was not an original uh, discovery by me. It confirms what we've known for decades, and that is that people come to Christ... 85% of them do, through family members and friends. It's important to have the church here and have the church ready to receive. But if all we're relying on is what we do here on Sunday morning to attract people in, we're not playing with the most effective method of evangelism that there is. It's people who are out there being a credible witness, people like you, wherever you go throughout the week, wherever you touch lives throughout the week, that is where the money is. That is where the Spirit moves. That is where God is active, as it says in John 5, where Jesus says, I see what the Father is doing, and I do it as well. The actions out there in your lives, in your relational networks, and it is when you are out there being a follower of Jesus Christ that the Spirit uses your life your words, your actions to awaken within people a spiritual need. Jesus was being Jesus, and he awakened a spiritual need. We have the same opportunity, you and I. You and I. Let's move on. The second thing Jesus does is he welcomes them. He welcomes, rather, Zacchaeus. Take a look at the verse. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, that is the spot where the tree is that Zacchaeus climbed, He stops and he looks up. He looks up. Do you see that? Don't pass by that too quickly. What's going on there? You know, they say 75% of our communication is nonverbal. Nonverbal. It's it's what you do with your eyes. It's how you position your body. It's uh, whether you're saying, no, I'm not willing to talk with you and you're looking away, or you're looking down, or you're looking past someone. It's whether you literally stop 
and indicate an openness for conversation. These are the things that people read, as you do with other folks, that really make a difference. And when it says, how do we welcome people into our lives? How do we make room for people in our lives? I'm saying to you, a lot of it is how you non-verbally communicate to others. One of the things I'm always reminding myself of at at, uh, Vineyard Columbus, because I have a lot of ground to cover on Sundays, generally speaking, is that I need to walk more slowly through the lobby. I'm usually blitzing from one point to another, you know, and I'm missing out on, I'm missing out on uh, uh, opportunities to talk with people. How busy are you, is your life? How busy is your life? Are you going at such a speed? Are you going so fast that you're missing opportunities to communicate a sense of openness to other people, people who are in desperate need to have some of your attention, who are curious about your walk with Jesus? are just looking for a little human compassion? Is your agenda so full that there's no margin for you to pause and stop and look up and acknowledge somebody and say, I see you, you're a real person. I see you as a unique person, somebody made in the image of God. I see the possibility that your day may not be going well, or I see that your life is cleaned up as it looks, really isn't all that put together, and now I'm making room for you possibly interact with me. You should think about that this week. You should think about where God is moving in your relationship networks this week. And whether you're following the Father's lead, you're doing what the Father is doing. You know, um, Jesus was doing that because he came to seek and to save the lost. This was his mission. He was being criticized about it all the time. Back in the 15th chapter of Luke, Jesus is criticized because he's hanging out with sinners and he's eating with them. And to eat with someone was to indicate friendship during that time. And there is some truth of that today. It's who you're seen with at Bob Evans. It's who you're seen with at Applebee's or Pasquale's downtown at uh, Westerville. Uh, It's who you're hanging out with that people notice and who you're breaking bread with, who you're inviting over to your home, who you're opening your home up to that people notice. And this is what Jesus was doing in chapter 15, and he's criticized for it, and then he tells three short stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son, all to illustrate that this is what he's about, seeking and saving the lost. Let's move on. Time's going past quickly. So Jesus welcomes Zacchaeus despite mistakes, despite the greed, despite his lack of loyalty to his countrymen, despite uh, the fact that he had neglected God for years and years and years. Christine Pohl, P-O-H-L, professor at Asbury Seminary, wrote a book saying, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Practice. And she simply recalls that as you read through the passages of, in Scripture and as you look at the early church, one of the most effective ways of sharing Jesus Christ was to practice the spiritual gift of hospitality, to open up your life to another person, to open up your home to someone new. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about you doing that because here's the reason. When hospitality is extended, an opportunity to share the gospel will follow. Write that down. That's a principle. When hospitality is extended, 
When you make room for people in your life, in your house, in the workplace, the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ will follow. Jesus welcomes Zacchaeus. He calls us to welcome grills and broken people. Number uh, three, back to verse five, this last part of verse five. Then Jesus invites. He invites. That's step three. He said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This invitation to relationship. Zacchaeus came looking for Jesus. He wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm inviting you to take a good, hard look. Zacchaeus had gone to the, to the roadside to see him pass by, and Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm camping out today in your life. Zacchaeus came looking for perhaps some hope and an experience in love, and Jesus stops and says, I'm going to rekindle hope in your life and show you what real love is. But he does that through invitation. Second chances begin with relationship. Second chances begin with relationship. We have to admit our need, yes, to Jesus, that our life is broke. And we have to reach out for him to fix it. But we have to receive the relationship that he's offering. And that's what Jesus does. New life at the heart is at the heart of the gospel. New life, a second chance is at the heart of the gospel. And it begins with an invitation. Now notice on that verse, the word immediately. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Move now. I'm going to extend an invitation to you. And this immediacy is an important piece to remember. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of years saying, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm praying about that, which is a good thing to do. Or I intend to invite this person to my church. Or I intend to kind of get around. I'm waiting for the right perfect moment to sort of, you know, make sure the conversation, you know, frames up just right so that I can share Christ. Or I'm waiting to get more courage. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters and Lord, the gospel is for today. Here and now. That's true for any of you who are out here in the audience, by the way, who may not yet have decided about Jesus. Today is the day of salvation talk about that in a moment but people in your life just think about this for a moment people in your life you know it's great to say well i'm getting around to it or i think god's moving me in that direction or when an opportunity suddenly shows up on monday at the at the at coffee room or you know out in the parking lot or in a moment while you're discussing work or someplace you know and you go oh oh my gosh that was new i didn't see that coming i better go home and pray about that no That's the Holy Spirit saying, now's the time. I'm going to move on to something here, just quickly. It's called a Frank list. We named it Frank so you can remember it. Frank. My first church in Chicago, every other person I met was named Frank. It was the biggest joke in our family. But Frank, it's a way of remembering your relational network. And I want to ask you, I want you to write down a name. I want you to hit one of these categories. Remember I said most people come to Christ through family and friends. Who are your friends and who in that friend network does not know Jesus? Write a name down. What about your relatives? Who within your extended family doesn't know Jesus? Write the name down. What about your acquaintances? The person that you buy coffee from at Starbucks or the uh, Speedway uh, gas station where you fill up. And you see the same person behind the counter all the time. 
associates, sales contacts, colleagues in related departments that you interact with, you don't work with every day, but you relate with. Who, who doesn't know Jesus? What about your neighbors? Your neighborhood? People living next to you, down the street. Who doesn't know Jesus? And what about kids with their families that your kids know? People that you're running into on the soccer field or the baseball diamond or uh, on the swim team or in the orchestra or the band, whatever. Your kids just interact with this wide range of people and you go to the events and you run into people. Who doesn't know Jesus? Write a down. I'm saying to you right now, I'm saying to you, every one of you, there ought to be a name, at least a name on this God is saying to you, you're the one who is going to extend the invitation to the kingdom of God to this person. You're the one that I want to work through. You're the one I'm using today. You're the one who's the friend with faith. With faith. You've got it. Share it. Let me move on to the last point. What I love about this story is that it really outlines what is the complete picture in terms of bringing somebody into the kingdom. And uh, for me, it's not just sharing Jesus and having them say the prayer. For me, it's I'm always looking for evidence that they really got it, that they're really now tracking and beginning to take their first steps in following Christ. And here's Zacchaeus showing us exactly that. We find him in this, in this verse, verse 8 and 9, changing being transformed, a new life entering into him. Let's read it together. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, 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 look, Lord, rather, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll, I'll pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Quickly, as our time runs down, three things stand out that indicate real conversion. Three things stand out that we need to pay attention to and see, initial seeds beginning to take root. That the, that the Word of God has fallen into good soil and something's happening. First of all, is this person becoming a changed human being? Is their heart changing? I love to say, when somebody comes to Christ, they become human again. And, and most of the people who are out there running around looking shiny on the outside aren't even human. There's some, there's some fraction of what God created them to be. They're diminished. They're diminished. That's what sin does to us, remember? But when you see somebody who's beginning to let go of guilt, and you're finding somebody who begins to ask for forgiveness, and when you find somebody who's beginning to show the fruits of the Holy Spirit, hey, we have a human being who's coming back online. And becoming a new creation of God instead of the Second thing, change relationships, restored relationships. When you find somebody now who starts asking others, not just extending forgiveness, but starts going to people and saying, I offended you and I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm asking for you to forgive me for what I did because you are important to me. That's a person who's embraced Jesus Christ. When you find somebody now who's making time to come to church to enter into biblical community who's setting aside you know the golf game on Sunday morning to be here who's saying no I'm going to make room to be a part of regular Christian fellowship and Bible study and prayer with other Christians and that's a person who has encountered Jesus Christ that's a person who's got 
And then the third thing is this. When you find somebody who's beginning to serve the poor, when you find somebody who's beginning to serve others, that's evidence that that self-centered life is beginning to shift over to a God-centered life. And that's a person who has really gotten Jesus. Zacchaeus did. He was becoming restored or reconciled. And new life and new joy was entering his life. It was it was cool stuff. And friends, I want to say to you today that if your eyes have become dull to the opportunities to do what Jesus did, to see the Spirit of God awakening, stirring spiritually in people's lives, and to be welcoming as a person of other folks, and to be invitational in terms of inviting them to see Jesus, and then helping them in the initial steps of restoring them to the life that God intended them to live. If your eyes have become dull to those opportunities today, is an opportunity for you to say, Lord, take the cataracts off my spiritual eyes and, and soften my heart again with all that you're doing out there, because this is what you have called me to do. Why don't you stand? Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.